This is The Guardian. I'm Laura Murphy-Oates and this is The Full Story. I begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we meet. I pay my respect to their elders past, present and emerging and on behalf of the Australian Labor Party I commit to the Uluru Statement from the Heart in full. Anthony Albanese's election night speech signalled a new approach for Indigenous affairs. Labor has committed to funding and reforms in Indigenous health, welfare and the justice system. But one of their biggest tasks will be implementing the Uluru Statement from the Heart in full, with a commitment to hold a referendum on a voice to Parliament during their first term of government. We can answer its patient gracious call for a voice enshrined in our constitution. So how does Labor and the new Minister for Indigenous Australians, Linda Burney, intend to deliver on these promises? I understand this country. I understand the importance of this issue. And I understand what building consensus is about. Today, Linda Burney and Indigenous Affairs Editor Lorena Allam on First Nations policy under a new Labor government. It's Tuesday, the 7th of June. So, Lorena, we know that the new Labor government has set out to achieve quite a few things when it comes to Indigenous affairs. What are their main priorities? Yes, as you say, they've got some big goals. Um, They say they will scrap the CDEP or the work for the Dole scheme, the punitive work for the Dole scheme. They will abolish the cashless debit card uh, and make income management voluntary. Uh, They've promised millions for justice reinvestment to reduce reoffending based on the model that has been rolled out in the western New South Wales town of Burke. Mm. They are offering funds to Aboriginal families to help participate in coronial inquests after a death in custody, and that's a special bucket of standalone funding for Aboriginal legal services to enable that to happen. Mm. Uh, They want to spend millions on repairing health infrastructure, you know, falling down clinics and, and you know, tumble down infrastructure in Aboriginal primary healthcare services and they want to fund 500 new Aboriginal health workers, which is, you know, fantastic if they can pull it off. Mm. Um, Then there's $300 million or more for remote area housing. Uh, $100 million of that will go to remote communities in the Northern Territory. And then there's the task of implementing the Uluru Statement from the Heart. The person responsible for implementing a lot of this will be our new Minister for Indigenous Affairs, Linda Burney. First of all, congratulations. Thank you. How have the last few days been since the election? Well, (laughs) today is day three and the adrenaline is over. I spoke to Linda a few days after the election. She was still in her electorate office in the Sydney suburb of Cogra and was, you know, preparing to, to... moved to Canberra to take on this enormous job. I'm starting to feel like I've been hit by a truck and I think I'm not the only one that would be feeling that way. 
So, Lorena, before we jump into that big list of Indigenous Affairs policy priorities, I want to talk about Linda Burney for a second. She has achieved a lot of firsts in her career. She was the first Indigenous woman in the House of Representatives, and now she's adding a couple more firsts to that list. Can you just tell me a bit about her? Linda started off her career a long time ago in Aboriginal Affairs. She has been an advocate for Indigenous education ever since I can remember. She was the chair of the Aboriginal Education Consultative Group in New South Wales. I've been a member of Parliament since 2003. She migrated to state politics in New South Wales. I was the deputy leader of the Labor Party in opposition. She was once a minister in the New South Wales government. She was the Minister for Fair Trading for several years. Then, obviously, in 2016, was invited to contest the federal seat of Barton, which was then held by the Liberals. They only had one term, I point out. She then became the first Aboriginal woman elected into the House of Reps at a federal level. And was appointed immediately to the front bench in opposition. And now she's the first Aboriginal woman to hold this role of Indigenous Affairs Minister and the first Aboriginal woman in Labor Cabinet. This time around in this parliament, there will be a record 10 First Nations parliamentarians, six of them in the Labor Party. Right, so let's go back to Labor's policy agenda. What did Linda say about the first steps that she would take as Indigenous Affairs Minister? One of her first priorities is starting the process of building consensus, as she calls it, uh, in terms of the voice to Parliament and the Uluru Statement from the Heart. To implement the Uluru Statement is complex. It will take time. It will require the imagination and the, the participation of the entire country. Mm. Let's dive into the Uluru Statement from the Heart and maybe do a quick refresher. What is the Uluru Statement from the Heart? The Uluru Statement from the Heart was issued to the Australian people in May 2017, and it was developed after two years of very intense deliberative dialogues around the country. Mm. Broadly, it calls for constitutional reform uh, and meaningful structural reforms based on justice and self-determination for Indigenous peoples. Mm. What it looks like is there's three elements, voice, treaty, truth. The voice is a First Nations voice to Parliament, which is enshrined in the Constitution. A treaty or treaties or treaty-making processes, whatever they might look like, to finally settle the unsettled truth that is Australia was um, occupied without consent of First Nations people. And the third thing is a Makarata Commission to supervise this process of agreement-making and really significantly this process of truth-telling that will flow from the process. Makarata is a, a Yolngu word which means to come together after a struggle and to make peace. Before we talk about the voice, I just want to touch on the treaty and truth stages because there's already treaty and truth processes happening at a local and state level around the country. So what would a federal government do in that space? Treaty and truth are complex. As we know, treaty making takes a long time. The idea that a treaty is easy is a false idea. It is complex. It is time-consuming. And when you look at places like British Columbia, 
which have done contemporary treaty processes, which is what we're talking about here. I think it took 13 years. We in Australia have got treaty processes underway in Victoria, in Queensland and in the Northern Territory where people are, Aboriginal people are bringing their own views about what treaties should look like, what they should include, who they should be with. I mean, in some cases in the Northern Territory, people are talking about having treaties with their neighbours, as well as with the Territory Government, as well as with the Feds, as well as with cattle leaseholders. The possibilities of treaty making really have the parameters of that are yet to be defined. And the same goes for truth-telling, which is an enormously important part of this nation's journey and can take a million different forms. Truth-telling can be the sort of the big performative national commission, which is what happened in South Africa. I'm very flexible about what a national process might look like, but I do think the most powerful thing would be uh, local initiatives. Interestingly, a lot of the truth-telling processes may be local. And you look at Mile Creek, for example, and the way in which that's transformed the Mile Creek Massacre Memorial. Linda talks about the example of, of Mile Creek, the massacre site here in New South Wales where the descendants of the survivors and the perpetrators have come together over many years to build a memorial process. And the fact that they have a weekend every June uh, to recommit to that. So it really is about, in my view, local communities uh, coming together and deciding between each other what needs to happen to heal that part of the country. Not everyone wants a memorial in stone. Some people want a different way of commemorating. So um, those things are necessarily open and can flow from the Makarata Commission. As you say, treaty and truth may take a long time or occur without much intervention from the federal government, but Labor has committed to working on a voice to parliament as a priority pretty much straight away. So what is a voice to parliament, Lorena? What could it look like? This voice is meant to be a permanent forum of representation from which First Nations people can advocate for their peoples to the parliament and the government of the day. But it could be lots of things and all of that is yet to be worked out. I mean, people often invoke the spirit of ATSIC when they talk about a voice to parliament. So for those who don't remember, ATSIC was the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commission. It was created in 1990 under the Hawke Labor government. And then it was dissolved under the under John Howard's government in 2005. Mm. It was a representative body that was elected from the ground up that was uh, advised governments about um, policy, and legislation. And the fundamental difference, I think, between what ATSIC represented and what the voice will represent is that ATSIC could be abolished by legislation because it was created by legislation, whereas a voice to parliament will be enshrined in the constitution and cannot therefore be abolished by the government of the day. Mm. Whether it would be responsible for the allocation of funds, for programming and service delivery, All of those details are yet to be worked out. But since the demise of ATSIC, we haven't had any way of representing uh, First Nations peoples to government. And so this is going to be a massive step forward. And what does that process look like from here? So Linda Burney says that the important part at the moment, certainly the next 12 months, uh, will be about building consensus, building the case. Really 
conducting a bit of a public education campaign about what it is, why a a referendum is important, Mm. what a question could be, what are the benefits to Australians in this happening and the voice being created. I mean, you can't expect people to vote on something that's not articulated. So what will the voice look like? Uh, How will it be constructed? Um, explaining that the the voice should be enshrined in the constitution so it can't be removed by the government of the day. And there's legislative um, processes before the referendum can be held. I mean, a, a bill outlining the proposed changes to the constitution has to be passed by both houses of parliament or passed twice in the House of Reps or the Senate. Those are things that, that have to be bettered down and that will take time. So. For all this to happen, the public needs to be on board. But first, the parliament also has to be on board to pass this legislation. Do we know whether The Voice will face much opposition within parliament? Well, some Conservative MPs have warned in the past that they would actively campaign against any referendum. But the opposition leader, Peter Dutton, has so far kept the door open to it. He he says he will wait for the detail. Right, but we don't need the opposition necessarily to pass this through Parliament. What's the messaging from, you know, the crossbench, the independents and the Greens? Well, according to Linda Burney, there are some crossbenchers who do support the Uluru Statement. Clearly we need to talk to the Greens about the views that they have. I'm a little confused about what their position exactly is. Um, And obviously the crossbench is important. Do you have any indication from the crossbenchers yet of where they stand? Um, a number of the independents have expressed their support for the Uluru Statement. I can't tell you exactly who or how many, but that's something that we will pursue. What do we know about community support for the Uluru Statement right now? Like a lot of things in the Australian uh, public space, we found this with the same-sex marriage debate. Public support for a referendum to enshrine a voice to parliament in the constitution has grown steadily. Mm. The ABC's Vote Compass found that at the last election, about 64% of voters supported the push for a referendum. This time around, 73% are in favour. So that's mm. steadily rising. Um, it's unprecedented that a group of faith leaders uh, made a very public commitment to the to the Uluru Statement with the Sikh community, the Muslim community, Anglicans, Catholics, Presbyterians, the Buddhists, where they said, we're on board. Mm. And what about support for The Voice in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities? We know that not all of our mobs support the Uluru Statement or feel that they have been included in the statement so far or in the consultative processes that have gone on so far. Mm. So we pose the question is, what are we going to get out of this constitution? We have a Labor government, and as you can see up on this panel here, there is no diverse conversation with us as the people. Last Thursday on Q&A on the ABC, Gwenda Stanley, who's a Gomorrah woman and caretaker at the Aboriginal Tent Embassy in Canberra. We do not support the Uluru Statement. I would like to know what is in this constitution and how will it benefit us as Aboriginal people in this country? Where is the interest of us as Indigenous Australians, First Nation, Gomorrah people, the first impact by colonialism, by pastoral law, while we still have these governments and these Liberal Labor parties still making decisions on our affairs? 
So Gwenda Stanley's comments were made after I had spoken to Linda Burney, but she was on that panel and responded by saying that... It'll be my job as the Minister for Indigenous Australians to bring people together, to listen to people that disagree with um, the Uluru Statement and try and find common ground. That is what's important. It, is, it would be absolutely wrong not to listen to everyone's voices. So there's a big conversation that needs to happen within the next few years, both in the Indigenous community and the non-Indigenous community. Next, Linda Burney on Albanese's leadership style and how Labor will change the health, welfare and justice system for First Nations people. So, Lorena, that's Labor's plans for the Uluru Statement and The Voice. But I want to touch on some of the other big ticket items that you mentioned that they want to tackle, starting with the scrapping of the CDP program and the cashless debit card. Can you just remind us about what these programs are and and how they work? So CDP is also known as Work for the Dole. It required about 30,000 job seekers in remote communities to work up to 25 hours a week to receive the dole. 80% of those participants were Aboriginal people and there were claims that they faced far tougher penalties than people in other parts of Australia. Mm. People described the scheme as modern-day slavery and racist Under the CDP, if people didn't turn up for their 25 hours a week, they lost payments. Mm. And we had several studies over the course of the last five or six years that said that, you know, thousands of Aboriginal families were going hungry because they had literally been cut off from any welfare payments because of this kind of punitive scheme. In 2019, the scheme was subject to a class action. And in 2021, the federal government agreed it had to pay $2 million in compensation to hundreds of CDP participants. The cashless debit card was another form of of punitive welfare where people were on forced income management where usually, you know, a percentage of their income was quarantined on this card. It couldn't be used to take out money. You couldn't buy alcohol. You couldn't, you know, in some cases shop in places that sold alcohol or gambling products. Mm. The logic behind it was that it was going to stop the humbug, give people more disposable income for essentials and and stop people wasting money on grog and gambling. Mm. And while, you know, there were trial sites in WA and Queensland, South Australia, the coalition wanted to roll it out much more widely, arguing that it was, you know, supposed to reduce social harms, but there's been no evidence produced, none whatsoever to date, that it works. Mm. I'm also really interested in this promise to invest millions of dollars for justice reinvestment to reduce reoffending. What will that look like specifically, Lorena? So again, it's early days, but Linda Burney said she would seek a joint arrangement with the states and territories. So the model we've put in place for justice reinvestment is 20 or 30 programs across the country, but it requires 50-50 funding where the feds would put in a certain amount of money matched by them. And I've already had uh, two jurisdictions talk to me very positively. An example of the type of program that Labor wants to invest in is the program in Burke in northwest New South Wales. It's become really well known for reducing offending by channelling 
efforts into linking up all the services around town mm. uh, to talk to each other. The interesting thing that really interested me was there was a 72% reduction in the number of people under 25 arrested for driving without a licence. And how they solved that problem was that they got the cops to offer driving lessons to the kids. Right. Instead of arresting people for not having a licence, help young people get a licence in these communities. It's pretty simple. Correct. So these are the kind of really basic sort of ground up solutions that can be built on with justice reinvestment. But there has to be common goals and there has to be a reduction in the amount of young black kids being locked up. Mm. There's also some specific measures for deaths in custody, for tracking that and for supporting families. Can you tell me a little bit about that, Lorena? Yes, so Labor has, Labor's been committed to this for some time. You know as well as I do, at the moment you find out about a death in custody because there has been a statement from the government or the families are talking about it. Pat Dodson said as much a few years ago where he was criticising the, the government at the time for not having any understanding, any knowledge of how many deaths in custody there had been. There is no mandatory reporting and we want to change that. So Labor has committed to real-time tracking of all deaths in custody, Indigenous and non-Indigenous, with a view to using that work to monitor how states and territory jurisdictions are taking care of uh, custodial matters. But that requires a careful negotiation with states and territories. The other thing that they have called on, which will be really interesting, is a, is a state and territory jurisdictional summit with the Commonwealth about deaths in custody, mm. a big sort of uh, big all-in meeting that they want to have in the first term of government. Another big part of that package will be $13.5 million of standalone funding for Aboriginal and Islander legal services to ensure that First Nations families who are going through a death in custody can access culturally appropriate and um, fair legal assistance before, during and after a colonial process. Mm. Quite often families can't participate because they're obviously often in the city I mean, we've reported on this so often, Laura, like with the, in the case of the Dungay family where they had to crowdfund to come to Sydney to attend the coronial hearings mm. for David Dungay Jr. Not once but several times and that is played out over and over again. Uh, families have often said they don't understand the process, they need proper legal representation. The legal services have said they are overwhelmed with representing people in coronial matters and it's not something they are they are funded to do. They have to find the money within their existing budgets. So that announcement's been very welcomed by the Aboriginal legal sector. So, Lorena, there's policy announcements and then there's actually following through on those policies. This type of change requires leadership and broad support in the government. Is this government and the new Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, up to that job? It's a big job. Look, it, it remains to be seen. It's really early days. And the, the kind of speculation that's going on really speaks to how excited and hopeful people are broadly that this new government will bring in the change that that they voted for, that they that Labor campaigned on. Mm. So we don't know, but there is hope for what it's worth. 
Linda Burney told me there's support from across the party to Labor's Indigenous Affairs policy Mm. and there's huge support for Labor's Indigenous Caucus, which will now have at least six Indigenous members in it. So the biggest number of of, uh, Indigenous people in the Labor Party ever. So she's, she's sort of saying that it's not just her job to do this work, it's the whole of government's approach and the, the Indigenous caucus will, will help as well. To say that everything with an Aboriginal title should happen out of Aboriginal affairs is, is not what's going to happen, uh, but what will underpin Labor's approach to Aboriginal affairs is the principle of self-determination. What you've heard from the Prime Minister is a different way of doing things, more collaboration, putting Aboriginal people at the centre of decisions. She's the member for Barton and Albo is the member for Grainler. They are neighbours, almost literally neighbours. Uh, <laughs> they live in pretty much the same suburb and she's known him for 35 years. Mm. She said she knows him well enough to know that the things that he's said about Indigenous affairs, he, he absolutely means. He's absolutely genuine about that. It's not just words. It's it's truly what he thinks. And that means that we go about things in a very careful and deliberate way. Minister for Indigenous Affairs, Linda Burney, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. As you say, there is feelings of hope being expressed about this agenda for Indigenous Affairs, but you've reported on many governments and their promises on Indigenous Affairs over the years, Lorena. How are you feeling about the next three years? We've had our hopes up before. Hope isn't going to feed your kids. Hope isn't going to get politicians in Canberra to listen to you and to change the policies that are actively harming your people and your people's future. I think the antidote to all of that is to be active. And so if we want these changes to happen and we want them to be a success, we have to get engaged and make sure that we hold them to account. That's it for today. You can read more of Lorena's reporting on Indigenous affairs at theguardian.com, including her piece on Linda Burney titled Ready to Take on the Challenge, Linda Burney on the Uluru Statement, Treaty and Building Consensus. This episode was produced by Camilla Hannon, Laura Bradley-Newton and Joe Koning, who also did the sound design and mixing. The executive producers of Full Story are Miles Martignoni, Gabrielle Jackson and me, Laura Murphy If you liked this episode, don't forget to leave a rating or a review. Okay, catch you tomorrow.